Hey Thrivers, you're listening to the Thrive Student Ministry Podcast. Thrive is an MBSF college ministry on the campus of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. At Thrive, we empower students to engage in their relationship with God through mentorship, friendship, and the discovery of their purpose. For more information on our gathering times, including our events, small groups, and weekly worship, visit us at thriveuark.com or follow us on our social medias at thriveuark. This week, Dom kicks off a new series entitled My Servant Job. Our scripture for tonight comes from Job chapter one. We hope you continue listening. So anyway, yeah, I'm super excited for uh, this next three uh, out of the four weeks. Um, Jack did a great job um, with our first series. We kind of were going through some of the fundamentals of the faith. Um, But this next three out of the four weeks, um, we're going to be walking through this series about Job. And if you know Job, you know how awesome the book of Job is. Um, But if you don't, here's some things you need to know. Um, Job is one of the three wisdom books. The other ones are Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Um, the book of Job is placed in the, um, the region of Uz. Um, is, I think how you say that. I could be wrong. Um, but the point of that is that it's really what it is. It is, a, it is an obscure land away and apart from Israel. Um, and we don't really know. Uh, it's heavily debated who wrote um, the book and when it was written. Um, but uh, one thing that has been debated, and we think with, that they're correct about this, is that we can place um, what happens in Job between the occurrences of Noah and after Noah and before Moses. Uh, and so, um, to my estimation, uh, I think that those things are right, but I think it's really interesting that such an important book of the Bible, it's really different than any other book that's in um, our Bible, but we don't know near as much about this book as we do about others. And so why? And so my first thing that I wanna say is I think that the reason why so much of it is obscure is because Christ wants us to know and to keep the focus on the purpose of the book of Job. And so what is that purpose? And so the purpose of Job is kind of twofold. If you've read Job before, you know that is in a way, a manual to how we walk with God through pain and suffering. And I would argue that there's a secondary purpose, and in my opinion, it might be even greater um, than the first, is that kind of what we see in the book of Job is that it gives us a look into and kind of a slight understanding, not a full understanding, but a slight understanding of some of the policies and way by which God governs the world. And so I think we can experience that and see some of that through how Job navigates through his suffering. But I think that it's important for us to understand because we say that we believe in a sovereign God. But when bad things happen to us, when tragedy befalls us, we start to doubt that sovereignty. We start to doubt, is God all-knowing? Is God all-loving? Or is what we believe about God really true? We start to question it when we go through hardship. And so um, before we get started, it would be remiss if I didn't credit um, a couple of people who I've researched and really studied up on Job. I've gone through Job a couple times, but um, even when studying for this and then in past uh, studying the book of Job, Pastor Tim Keller uh, and then Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, they've been really influential in how I view the book of Job. And so I believe in giving credit where credit is due. And my thing is really flipping out a little bit. But let's jump in to Job chapter one, uh, verses at, starting in verse one. It says, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. 
He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He had, he had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. And so we're going to stop there uh, to start. And the first thing I want you guys to see is that Job is blameless. Whoever wrote Job, the author Job, is saying that Job is blameless. But there's a difference and that we need to see. And we see this a couple times in Scripture, that there's a difference between being blameless and being sinless. Right? And so the idea of being blameless horizontally, where Taylor can't say, Dom did this, or this is something that Dom has done that is wrong to me or someone else. Blameless, horizontal. Whereas sinless refers to how we interpret our relationship between our Father in heaven, God, God and me right? And God and Job. And so the difference between being blameless and sinless, but he also, he fears God, which in the Old Testament really refers to the idea of being in awe of or loving God. And so he loves God and stays away from evil. So the second thing that you need to understand is that lo- fearing God, loving God, and um, turning away from evil, those things go hand in hand. And we need to understand that. And so uh, what we also understand from this first piece is not just that Job wasn't upright morally, but that he was wealthy as well. Um, And so just a a, a small tidbit is that the numbers 3, 7, and 10 in the Bible typically refer to an idea of completeness, uh, perfection, righteousness. Um, You know, uh, Jesus rose on the third day, the seven days of creation, the Ten Commandments. And so anytime you see anything like that or adds up to 10, uh, you can know or you can assume in some ways that it's talking about some sort of righteousness, some sort of goodness or perfection. And so we see that with how much stuff, uh, how, how much wealth that Job has. Um, and so we're going to move on. And in, in, in verse 4, it says, Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would invite uh, their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. And so what we see from the second part, and it's really cool because, you know, you know about the families and uh, the people who are either wealthy, uh, rich, or they just have, um, they're just like a good person themselves, but then their family is a wreck. This was not Job's family. Job's family, they valued fellowship. They had feasts together. They celebrated with one another. Um, But even too, the thing that I find really interesting here is the fact um, that Job Job would go and purify his children through sacrifice. And some would say maybe it's just because he was super anxious about what if my children have sinned? What if my, uh, my children have cursed against God? And I think there might be some of that, but I think the more important thing that I really want to pull from that, this idea of Job sacrificing for each of his children on a regular basis, this is, was his regular practice, was the timing of which he did it. Because I think it's important to note, probably these festivities went late into the night, um, a lot like they, those, that's what those festivities were like in that time. And so they would go late, late in the night, but Job would get up in early in the morning to perform these sacrifices. And so for me, uh, as a former athlete, it reminds me of just going to the gym, uh, being the first to the gym and the last one to leave. I think if you, you really read into some of the best athletes um, in all the sports, something that you realize across the board is that they're the hardest working, they're the most devoted, they're the ones that are there the earliest and leave the latest just to get as many reps in, as many shots in, as, many, as much experience and as much practice as they can. 
And so what's important there is that just as pure, pursuing and loving God cannot be separated from avoiding evil, Job understood that fearing and loving God required a wholehearted devotion. And so <clears throat> I think we see that just from the idea that he did this on a regular basis, not just for, hey, I think one of my, my kids might have done this. He did this for each one of his children on a regular basis. And I think that's really important. It says a lot about Job's devotion um, to righteousness. And so uh, from there, we're kind of transported into the heavenly court. It shifts. Um, what's important to note here is that Job has no idea that this is going on. Um, but we pick up here in verse six, where it says, one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been trolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has a good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In verse 12, it picks up. He says, all right, you may test him. The Lord said to Satan, do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the presence of the Lord. So like I said, Job has no idea that this is happening. Um, but uh, what we know is that this is just a heavenly court. Uh, some people would interpret it as the angelic beings that convened with God. And so the first thing that we see is that fallen angels such as the Satan or Satan um, have access or had access to the heavenly realms and the heavenly court. Uh, we know from Revelation that at one, at one point they'll be cast down and restricted only to earth. Um, but God asks Satan, um, he says, from where have you come? And Satan says, I've been patrolling, uh, and patrolling the earth, watching everything that goes on. And this is what we see in what is par runs parallel to that idea in first Peter, where it says, be alert and sober minded. Your enemy has the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, uh, looking for someone to devour. And so I think that God already kind of had an idea um, of what um, Satan was there for. Uh, but you see that God is the one who interjects first in this next dialogue. And he says, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity, and he fears God and stays away from evil. And so what's really interesting about this is that he offers up Job, right? Um, and we could go really deep in on that, and we could preach a whole sermon on that, but for the second time, I'm not going to dive super deep on it. Um, but the idea here that I really want to pull out tonight is that idea that God is affirming what we already and what we've already been told about Job. He's saying that he's, he's righteous, he's blameless, uh, with complete integrity, and that he loves God. Right? And so what we're going to see um, this week and then through the rest of the book, whether it's Satan, whether it's later um, through the poetic dialogue with his friends, uh, or even later, we see that <clears throat> this isn't necessarily consistent with some of the, what some of the characters in this story think. And so when anyone in this, in this story thereby accuses Job of not being, of sinning or cursing God, uh, of being blamed, being blameful, being able to be blamed by someone else. What they're actually doing is they're, they're, taking, they're saying God is not true at his word, 
Because God here is saying, Job is blameless. Job does fear me, right? And so we can take that as objective truth. Job is, or God is the only objective party in this whole story as it, as it relates to what he thinks of Job in this moment. And so we're going to see what Satan wants here. It says, Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything uh, he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. So this is really important. This is really what lays kind of the groundwork for what's going to happen in the rest of this book. And so uh, there are a few things that we need to pull out here. Number one, unlike other appearances of Satan in the Bible, we've heard that Satan is the ultimate tempter, right? Um, but here he's, he's referred to as the accuser. And I think that it's, he's both, but I think there's a reason he's referred to the accuser here as opposed to the tempter, right? I think as opposed to in Genesis 3, right, where the fall and Satan, the snake, offers, um, offers man, Adam and Eve, uh, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's offering them something. Eat of this and you will be like God, right? He's offering them something. And even when we see the temptation of Jesus in the desert, what we see is that Satan tries to appeal to his human side, like his hunger. You can make these, these um, stones into bread because uh, you're hungry. And he's appealing. He's trying to offer something here. And so, but here he can't tempt God. There's nothing that, there's nothing here. Satan can't offer God anything. He has no power over him. He has no way to tempt him, right? And so instead of tempting and trying to offer God anything, what he's doing, he's actually accusing God of something. And so what is that? So we see that he accuses him of being a fraud. He's saying, Job doesn't love you. You're a liar. You're a fraud. And so is Job. He's saying, the only reason that Job loves you, not he doesn't love you, he loves the things that he's getting from you. And so what's important there, um, too, is that he's also saying that Job also doesn't love God. Job's just learned how to play the game well, right? And so it brings us to a fair point of evaluation for us, I feel like. Um, and so I think it's good for us to ask ourselves this idea of, do you love God for God? Or do you love God because of the things you can get from him? And this is very important. These two ideals are very important for us to distinguish between because they're not the same, right? Loving God for his things and what he's going to bless you for possibly is not loving God for God. What that is is the prosperity gospel, and that's not the true gospel, right? And so ask again, do you actually love God for God? Or do you love him because you have a community that you can be here on Wednesday night or a small group, right? Do you love them because you can get free food out of going to church or because your parents told you to go in high school? Or do you love God just because you, by loving God and saying you do, you avoid going to hell? Or do we really authentically understand and see who God is and what he's offering you into a relationship with him? And do you love him for who he says he is? And so we're going to see how Jeb responds to this um, but before we get into um, what God responds to Satan here in this moment, we need to unpack a couple other things. Number one, Satan has to ask permission from God, right? This, this misconception, and I even remember growing up and like seeing movies like Tom and Jerry and this idea that like God and Satan are opposed to each other, 
right? And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? While they stand for completely different things, Satan is not equal to God. But much to his delight, we like to, to give him that extra status that, oh, you could oppose God. You're, you're equal to God just on the other side of the yin and the yang. That's not true. S Satan is not in any way has any power against or above God in any fashion. The other thing that we see is that he's telling God to take away, thing, take away things from Job and to cause him to suffer. But what we see and what we know about what's true about creation, what's true about God is when God created the earth, he said, and it is good, right? And so pain and suffering, disease, famine, those things did not come from God. Rather, they're a manifestation of the rebellion that we made against God during the fall, right? And so God does respond and he does permit it. He says, all right, he may test him. Do whatever you want uh, with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically, physically. And so you see God places, while he's allowing Satan to go and inflict this suffering on Job, he's also hampering it. He's also give, putting a limitation on, on what Satan can do and thereby proving the idea that Satan is not equal to God. Satan can only do what God permits him to do, right? And so this brings us to the idea of why would God allow this? I think it's twofold. I think, um, number one, God only gives Satan enough ammunition for him to shoot himself in the foot, right? He wants to give him, he's giving him the ability to accomplish the exact very opposite thing of what Satan thinks he's going to accomplish. Because Satan thinks he's going to get God to curse or get Job to curse God. Rather, what's going to happen and what we're going to see, at least in round one, right, is that God gives him only enough for him to accomplish the very opposite thing that he wants to, right? And so the second thing that we see, and this gets a little bit more um, controversial, but the idea that um, while Job doesn't love God for the things that he's getting from God, and while we do see that Job is um, blameless, he's a, he is actually devoted to God and trying to seek after him. Job doesn't completely, at this point, love God for God alone, right? And we're, we would see that, and we're, we're going to get into it over the next few weeks over this dialogue that he has with his friends, but what comes out in that is this idea, there is a lot of self-centeredness in this idea within Job, right? And so we see that as it plays out over the next few weeks, uh, in the next, definitely the next you know, 20 some odd chapters. But at this point, Job does not truly love God for God. And so another purpose that we can draw from this is that what's gonna happen is that Job, or God is allowing this to happen in an effort in, in order to bring Job eventually closer to himself, right? By the end of the book of Job, Job realizes you know, the fault in his thinking and his, his view of how God operates in the world. And then he eventually does. He, he loves God for God, you know. Um, and if you read the book of Job, you kind of know some of that. Um, and so one of the things that we need, need to get to before we get into Job's actual suffering is that, to remind you the idea that Job doesn't know what's going on and this idea that he, he never will and he can't. Uh, I was going to share a story, this idea of, uh, of a specific Marvel movie I ruined for one Lane Albee, but I decided not to just because I know it's so traumatic for him. Then also on the off chance that some of you haven't seen Avengers Endgame and, you know, 
I think if I spoiled this at point, this point, it'd be your own fault. But I decided to go a different direction. Sorry, Lane. Um, but this idea of, I think a lot of times in life we say, I could do this or I could go through this if only blank, right? If I only knew in, in five years it was gonna get better or in five and 10 years, you know, this is where I'd be. You know? But inherently what that's doing is that you're saying, you know, I don't love God, God for God. I love God for the blessings that he's going to give me or he could give me in the future, right? And I know that that's true even within myself. Um, that in the midst of my pain and suffering, I um, was adopted uh, when I was four months old. Uh, I, have a, I have a great family, loving parents. Um, on the same sense, uh, I was sexually abused when I was four um, by a family friend, and this spiraled me into a deep, deep, dark depression. And I had lots of anger and um, outlash against it from being young and not able um, and having the tools to cope with it. Really, and so I often lashed out at my parents and friends and all these other things. And this was a three, four year long journey. I repressed the memory and remembered when I was eight. Um, and by the time I was 10 or 11, um, my parents were at the end of the rope. And so what they did is they took me to this treatment center, which as far as I knew at the time, um, was just going to be like a overnight. Uh, we just stay in San Marcos to uh, get some treatments done and some tests run that kind of thing. Um, but we get there on, I think it was a Friday, I guess. Uh, it was a couple weeks after my birthday. Um, but we get there and we go through the initial session with the, with the counselor there uh, and we get through it. And my parents get up and turn to me and they say, um, son, we're leaving you here. And so as a 10, 11 year old kid, that's earth shattering. And my parents, they said that, they walked out the door and I lashed out in anger trying to chase after them. And these two guys um, came and huge dudes, like really huge dudes. Um, no way I was winning that fight. But <laughs> they come and they restrain me. Um, and I don't, I mean, probably you guys are good kids. You probably, none of you guys got restrained. So maybe Lane, um, but <laughs> you know, um, I, it was, it was earth shattering for me. There's nothing I could do. Um, I was on my knees and I was put in this, like essentially this double arm bar, uh, which Allison can tell you now interning, that is not the safe way to restrain someone. Um, she can show you afterwards if you'd like. Um, but um, <laughs> in that moment, I remember like, there's nothing I could do. Um, and we grew up Catholic and I grew up believing in God and I remember even in that moment, me saying like, not this, not this anything but this, like I'll do anything you want me to if this is not what the future holds. At that point I didn't know anything about what the rest of that journey would be like. Um, it eventually led me here. But in that moment I didn't want God and my cries out weren't because I loved God, but rather they were because like whatever I, could, whatever I needed to do to get out of that situation, whether it was worship God or you know, do something and try to be better for my family. Like that was better than what I, the perceived alternative that I had in that moment. And I did not love God for God. I loved what I thought he might give me if I was obedient, right? I think that so many of us, when we go through pain and suffering, that's, that's our knee jerk reaction. That's what we, how we respond. And so now we're gonna see how Job responds, um, or I guess what happens to Job. And so 
picking up in verse 13, it says, one day when Job's sons and, uh, sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with news. Your oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside him um, when the Sabians raided, raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farm, farm hands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all your shepherds. And I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with news. Three bands of uh, the Chaldean raiders ha ha <clears throat> have stolen your camels and killed your servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with news. Your sons and daughters were feasting at their older brother's house. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in uh, from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. So if you've read that story before, you know just how devastating and tragic that is. If, if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and read it again later um, because what happens here is in an instant, Job seemingly inexplicably and devastatingly loses almost everything that he has, right? And so um, we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time here, although I feel bad because like this in many ways is one of the most important things that happens in this chapter, but I wanna get to Job's response, but there are a few pieces I wanna pick out before we get there. One is notice the time um, that this happens. It makes note of it. It says, um, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, and I think that that's there for a reason, um, at least for the context that we're gonna use it in tonight, is that time that we know that Job, Job and his family valued fellowship. They valued um, amity. They were very close with one another and their siblings, right? And so suffering and hardship in our lives is probably the most inevitable thing that will happen to us. We're all going to experience loss. We're all going to experience hurt, heartache, and those things, right? But what you realize is that it never comes at a good time. It's always seemingly the worst time to go th through hardship. And we never feel like we're ready. But what, what I want you to, to realize here in this moment with that verse is that idea that what, it doesn't, what matters more than that is how you respond. And we're going to see how Jeb responds later. Uh, but the other thing that I want to point out is that geographically, um, how all these things kind of took place. Um, this idea that the Sabians who attacked the farmlands and stole uh, the donkeys, this idea, kind of what we know and what has been pieced together from the book of Job, um, what we know from who they are and the nation that they were, uh, they came from the south. And then this idea that the fire of God came down from heaven, the Chaldeans who stole uh, the camels and killed their servants, they came from the north and the wind uh, came from all around. And so this idea that from all sides, this was inescapable for Job. This was happening, right? And there was no, this wasn't like Hurricane um, Katrina or anything like that, or Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Harvey, any of those. There was no evacuating. He went through this and he endured all of it simultaneously and it was inescapable. And so later in Job 9, 18, he says, he will not even let me catch a breath, but he fills me instead with bitter and sorrow. And so it's just kind of this idea that he can't even catch a breath of oxygen around him. He's so just ambushed, overwhelmed in, this, in these moments 
You know, and Job is, at this point, he's on an emotional roller coaster. This is the start of that roller coaster. Me and Taylor hate those. Um, <laughs> and so moving on to how Job responds. In Job uh, 1 verse 20, he says, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. And he shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. And so here we see how Job responds. And I think the immediacy of which it happens after he finds out about all the things that have happened to him, all the loss that he's endured, all the, this tragedy that has now befalled on him, it's immediate. And I think that's very telling. Uh, the first thing that we see from a physical standpoint is what he does is he tears his robe and he shaves his head, right? And at that time, that was a very common practice for showing strong emotion, uh, specifically grief, uh, kind of at that time. Um, especially during that patriarchal society. Um, but then even later we would see in Leviticus, um, or I guess that's chronologically before, but in Leviticus where, you know, that is a shaving of the head is against um, the Mosaic law. But what we know about the, the idea of Job is that if, we, if we're correct in thinking that Job is uh, after Noah, but before Moses, the law wasn't given yet. The other thing that we know is that he wasn't of the nation of Israel, therefore he wouldn't have been subject to the law anyway. And so he expresses this physical grief in this way. Um, but then I think there's a, there, there definitely is a spiritual response as well. Um, and so what, what, he, what it says is that um, he fell to the ground in worship. Um, and this is immediate, right? And he says, I came naked from my mother's room and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. And he says, praise the name of the Lord. And so I think probably the most important thing, at least to me, that we see in this, these verses here um, is by Job worshiping in this way. Uh, and I think that's incredibly, incredibly powerful, this idea that he worships. That's his first reaction. You know, I think so many of our first reactions are why or, you know, um, something like that. It's not just to fall on your knees and worship, typically, right? But I think... Number one, what this does is this disproves Satan, right? Satan, if you remember, we talked about his purpose in this was to get God to curse or get Job to curse God um, and to take away these things and expose both of them as frauds, right? And what he, Job is saying here through his worship is disproving and doing exactly what God intended in this moment is to give, give Satan enough ammunition for him to shoot himself in the foot. He accomplishes the exact opposite thing of what he was thinking he was going to accomplish. And so, you know, kind of with that, round one, at least, goes to Job. But the thing that we see from Job here that's probably even more powerful um, is this idea that what, what Job is displaying here is an accurate and a, a true understanding of grace, right? And this idea that he says, the Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord took it away, Right? So who was paying attention the first week? What did Jack say Grace was? Do you know, Taylor? Does anyone know? Grace was an unmerited gift, is an unmerited gift. Jack tells you who's paying attention, who's not. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Grace 
is an unmerited gift. And, it's, and so being a gift, what this means is that it's not earned, right? It's not deserved even. It is a gift, right? And so what he's saying is that, God, you gave this to me, and so I'm on, this is on loan to me, right? And I came out of my mother's room naked and vulnerable, and to that is what I'm going to return. So you, to you be the glory. You're the one who's given me these things. You have the right to take them back. And I think that this is powerful for a number of reasons. Um, the biggest and the most important, I think, is that Job we have a much bigger advantage in understanding grace than Job did. Um, we have the full scripture and we know because of the story of, of Jesus, the grace that he's offering us through the cross, right? Job didn't have that. And so for us, we really have no excuse for why we wouldn't respond in that way um, to any sort of pain and suffering and grief. Um, but the other thing that, that is important to note here is that we've seen this before right, is that um, Satan fails in this first attempt to get Job to do what he wanted him to do. But at this point, at least how I understand it chronologically, at this point, he's hitting 500. He's one for one, right? Because here in Job 1, what we see is that Satan goes to God and God says, Job loves me, right? I love Job. And he's like, no, you don't. That's not love. You all are frauds. And he's feeding this lie, which in some way, and what we would see, and what we're going to see over the next few weeks, is that there's a hint, just a very small hint of truth in what Satan is saying to God there. But God doesn't believe him. And then if you, you don't have to actually, but if you turned your Bible to Genesis 3 and saw the idea that God's, because he loves us, he tells us, he said, Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And this is, I'm telling you this because I love you, right? And Satan comes in the garden and says, God doesn't love you, right? You, that's not true, right? Did God really say that, right? And he's lying to us and feeding us this with zero truth, this idea that you can be like God, right? And it's a complete lie. There's no hint of truth in it. Right? But what happens is that we, in Adam and Eve, we believed Satan in that moment. And so I think that's so powerful for us to understand because I think it, those two stories, those two examples give us an idea um, into how we should really be thinking about God and what's wrong with how we approach um, our view of God, right? Uh, we know God, God knows us and God loves us, right? He loves us immeasurably more than what we can understand. But the difference in those two examples is that we don't understand it the same way. We don't believe it the same way, right? This is the idea, and Jack kind of talked about it, and we discussed it over um, our summer retreat, this idea of, you know, the hand, the head, and the heart, right? Uh, and that it needs to seep at some level into your heart when you would truly, really devote yourself to following someone, right? And so this idea that the difference in these two examples is that as surely as I know that this is my left hand and as surely as I know that I know left from right, I do not really truly in my heart understand and know that God loves me, 
right? And secondarily, we also, in response to the love that God offers us, we don't also, in turn, reciprocate that love in the same way either, right? I could go to a million different verses, but I'll just go for one. Yeah, right here. The most important commandment, and this is in Matthew 22, says, um, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. Um, and so this idea that you've never done that. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but you've never actually really done that. You've never loved God with all your heart, your entirety of your heart, all your, your soul, all your mind. You've never loved God that much, right? And so we could get into a debate, Paul Washer would have a debate about what's the greatest sin? Could it be breaking, breaking the greatest commandment? I don't necessarily know that that would be sin, um, but it does in fact give us perspective, right? In the dichotomy between these two responses to Satan being the tempter and the accuser here, right? And so, but what we do understand here is that Job, at least in part, understands this well, right? Job understands you can lose everything and still have all you need, right? And so when it all comes down to it and you're at your lowest point, right? Do you really and truly believe that God loves you, right? And that your ultimate source of joy comes from God, right? Because if your ultimate source of joy comes from your things or your degrees or your accomplishments, when those things, when suffering hits, and that's what suffering is, that it will take those things away from you, right? Then when those things are taken away from you, you'll be crushed. Whereas if, on the contrary, your ultimate source of joy is Jesus, right? When suffering hits, instead of being pushed away from that, You'll, it'll drive you deeper into the love that Jesus has for you. And so this idea again of, do you really love God for God? And do you understand it? And I really just kind of want to close, and you guys can come up, on, up here if you want to, this idea that I want to remind you, and maybe you haven't been reminded of this in a while, but this is the God who has offered himself to you in a relationship, to be in a relationship with you. And I'm stealing this kind of from Pathway social media. We've really been up in our social media game, both on the Pathway side and the Thrive side of stuff with my girl Kata Sheets. Um, but last Thursday I posted a post, and it's just a very simple post, and I said, Christ is dot, 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 right? And these were the responses I got. Sandra Stack, she said, Christ is our redeemer. Isaiah 44, 22 says, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins uh, like a morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Grady Finley, love Grady. He said, Christ is love. First, first John 4, 7 and 8 says, my dear friends, let us love one another since love is from God and everyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Whoever fails to love does not know God because God is love. I said, Christ is our hope. 
Hebrews 10, 22 and 23 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And so when it comes down to it, when the walls are closing in on you, do you understand who the God is who has offered his love to you? You can lose all you have and still have all you will ever need because of the hope, because of the joy, because of the sacrifice and grace that Jesus has offered us. Do you believe that?